The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, November 8, 2020, on the basis of Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. There are few events in a person's life that I think require more preparation than a wedding. I mean, today especially, weddings are elaborate affairs. I would wager that the average person probably has a fancier, more expensive, more bombastic event for their wedding than kings and queens enjoyed in the last thousand years. I mean, today it's, it's all dreamed out to the last detail, by, usually by the bride, sometimes the groom, starting when they're about six years old. And on the day of, the heat gets ratcheted up a little bit. Things go into top gear. The stress level is through the roof. The bride has blocked everything out into strict 15-minute increments to make sure that everybody is eating breakfast, getting hair, getting makeup, getting dressed, putting on shoes, and the only thing holding her together mentally, emotionally, and physically is upwards of 200 bobby pins in her hair. <laughs> From personal experience, I can tell you that as far as the groom's half of the party is concerned, the guys wake up about mid-morning and try to figure out what time the wedding actually is. And for the most part, this doesn't really pose a problem for the wedding because for guys, preparation includes a shower, a suit, a comb through the hair, and if there's time, some mouthwash. Regardless of how much you have to prepare or what you have to do to prepare, it's obvious that a wedding is not a casual event, and so you have to get ready for it. You have to be dressed properly. You have to be ready to go when the wedding time comes. Today, Jesus is presenting us with another wedding that we're all going to be a part of, and he really drives home here the importance of being prepared for it. He's talking, of course, and I think this is one of his most transparent parables. He's talking, of course, about the day that we're going to meet him, whether that's privately, personally, on the day of our death, or publicly on the day of his return. And the link between those two things is A, we don't know when either of them are going to be, and B, the condition in which you meet God depends very much on how you prepare for his coming. And I don't want to be misunderstood there because Jesus, of course, has made every preparation possible for you. He's made preparation very simple, and yet because of point A, because we don't know when the when is, we tend to treat the what, the fact that Jesus will return, as a mystery in and of itself. But that's, that's not a mystery. But we still end up treading that dangerous territory of kind of putting our faith on the back burner and neglecting our Christian life because we don't know. Jesus pushes for preparation in part because only the prepared are going to join him, but also because preparation protects the prepared from panic. Now, right off the bat, narrowly speaking, this parable centers around ten virgins, and I'll say that there's nothing to read into that. There's no symbology there. There's nothing that that represents. When it, back then, if you were a bridesmaid, you were an unmarried woman. And if you were an unmarried woman, you were a virgin. That's just how it was. But now, broadly speaking, this parable concerns, it, it describes a wedding. And I think that the wedding analogy is such an apt picture for the world's end from a Christian point of view. But we'll get to that in a moment. 
this is one of Jesus' most transparent parables, but I think it takes a little bit of explanation. See, back in Jesus' time and place, a wedding was a very mobile affair, and I really love the way that they used to do it. So there would be a period of betrothal, which is essentially a, legally a more legally binding form of engagement. And on the set day that they had agreed upon for this wedding, the groom would step out of his parents' house, the house where he had grown up with his mother and father, and he would walk, usually across town, to the home of his in-laws, where his bride would be waiting for him all dolled up and ready to go. Also waiting at that house would be these ten lamp-lighting virgins to keep the flame going, to herald the coming of the groom, to let everybody know he was almost there, and then finally, the groom would take his bride and carry her to the new home with these lamplighters, lighting the way for the newlyweds as they went to this new home that the groom had prepared for his bride. So now we focus back on the bridesmaids. On this occasion, the groom was taking his sweet time, and a lot of it. So much, in fact, that all the bridesmaids fell asleep. Some had oil to spare, some were just barely scraping by. But when that fateful hour came, and the groom was arriving, five were ready to go, five scattered so that they could get ready last minute, but when they came back, the wedding had already started without them. Now, ultimately, in this parable, we are the bride. That's a secret for now, but we'll get to that. But while we wait for Jesus, while we wait for the groom to come and take us home, we wait as bridesmaids with our lamps lit, keeping an eye out for the groom. So now what defines these bridesmaids? Like I said, it's not their virginity, it's their preparation. It's how they prepare for the coming of the bridegroom. Some have oil, some don't. The couple has been betrothed. The wedding dowry has been paid, and the date has been set. They know that the bridegroom is going to come. They know that he's going to take his bride home with him, with or without them. The only thing they don't know is when he's coming. And neither group sees any point in panicking over that. It's just the difference is the foolish virgins seem to think that there's no point, like they don't see any point in panicking because, well, if they don't know, they don't know. There's nothing that they can do. But for the wise, they don't have to panic because they've prepared. And that extra oil, which proves so valuable in the end of the story, is the lifeblood of a Christian. It's their faith. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's no wedding to be had at all. There's nothing to celebrate. Without the means of grace and baptism and the Lord's Supper, there's no oil of faith to fill our lamps. Without the precious word of God and the empowering community of believers to support us, there's no extra oil to refill our lamps when they run low. And I think it's important to see the significance of this picture of, of oil in the story. On its own, oil is nothing special. You look at it, you get it on your hands, it's on there all day, it's greasy, it's kind of annoying. These bridesmaids have it hidden away in, in dark little flasks that nobody knows about. It's just sitting there, unlit. But when you pour it into a lamp and light it, or when you pour that fuel of faith into a Christian, it burns brightly for everybody to see. And now staying rooted 
in that faith and engaged with the ever-refreshing word of God makes all the difference between pushing off your panic until later and permanently protecting yourself from panic. Across the whole vast spectrum of life, from human to animal, I think our most basic instinct is hunger. We say trust your gut because, well, your gut is that thing that gives you that primal nudge to put some food in your body so that you can live. And I think about where we live, the time and place that we are. Here in America, food is so plentiful and diverse and abundant and always available, you can always get your hands on it. And this luxury always blows my mind when I think about it, but here we have the luxury of turning down food if we don't want it. We always have the ability to say no to a snack, although we don't always take it. But we can say no because there's always going to be more food later. And so with that in mind, what kind of person would reject meal after meal after meal until they're wobbling on the edge of starvation? There's no good reason to put yourself through that. And yet, when it comes to God's word, which is abundant and plentiful and multifaceted, when it comes to that word of God and the faith life, that attitude is the most popular one we see. There's a dangerous contentment among Christians today to let the lamp run low, to let the wick burn ragged. And what maybe when the day is, burn, is shining bright enough on its own to let that lamp go out. Faith gets put in the periphery along with Jesus just until, until we need him, until life gets dark. And until then, I'll keep this cross dangling around my neck as a placeholder for my faith. What defined these foolish virgins is that they completely, they had every intention of being part of this wedding, but they made no preparation for it. And real life fools allow their lamps to burn low, they neglect their faith, they let it burn down to nothing, with every intention of being saved from their sins, with every intention of using that faith to get through the struggles of their lives. And that's dangerous. And now I'm certainly not imposing my faith against anybody else's. I'm not trying to puff myself up here because honestly, if, if the quality of our faith was, the, was what saved us, we would be totally lost. But this picture of oil in the lamp captures very simply this, this truth that faith, if it is neglected, will slowly and subtly be extinguished. Maybe your lamp is more fuel efficient than mine. Maybe it takes longer for it to burn down. I don't know. But I do know that a flickering lamp is in danger of going out. And now it well may be that you will meet God on Judgment Day. Or maybe your last breath on this planet will be followed by your first breath in his presence. And on that day, you will stand before God with nothing of your own to show unless you have the faith-given righteousness and grace of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, there will be no extra time. You will not be able to borrow faith from somebody else. There will be nobody, there will be no miraculous lamplighter to come and blaze your faith into action last minute in the presence of God. 
I can't imagine the confusion that those bridesmaids must have felt standing outside that door, listening to the voice of the bridegroom saying, truly I tell you, I don't know you. You don't know me. They're friends of the bride. They were handpicked by the bride and their family. You, you know, and now you're going to tell me you don't know me? That's ridiculous. That's crazy. But then imagine how confusion and ridiculousness melts into gut-wrenching horror as that voice of the groom changes to the voice of your creator who made you, who told you that he loved you, who numbers the hairs on your head as he says, I don't know you. That hurts. But there will be nobody to blame but ourselves if we hear that. If a moment of darkness has brought you into this church today, then I have no intention of chasing you out. Because if the grace of your loving Father has taken the form of tragedy or even boredom to chase you in here today, then I pray that his grace relights your lamp for good and prepares you to meet him. Jesus doesn't say these things to snuff out a smoldering lamp. He doesn't say them to ruin your faith or chase you out. He says them because he loves you. I say them. I repeat them to you because I love you. And I want Jesus to be your savior before he becomes your judge. Because when Jesus is your savior, even though the mystery of the when takes the goal out of sight, the certainty of the what makes preparation worth it. Now, before we even reach the end of this parable, the value of preparation becomes very obvious. Why? Because all of them fall asleep. All ten, the foolish and the wise. And guess what? That still praise for the wise virgins and still criticism for the foolish ones. It all comes back to preparation because the foolish dozed off uncertain and unconcerned with what they were going to do when the bridegroom showed up. The wise fell asleep certain that they were ready to meet him because they had prepared. For the, so for the foolish, sleep was ignorance, and for the wise, it was security. This plays into our lives because whether you're a believer or not, you're going to lose your mind if you spend your every waking moment staring at the sky waiting for Jesus to come back. Unbelievers have to go about their lives because if they're not going to prepare or if they don't see any need to prepare for Jesus, well then, they may as well enjoy the bliss of ignorance. And we can't, we have to go about our lives too, because, you know, we can and should have peace in our preparation. That doesn't mean that we sit on our hands and hide this little light of ours under a bushel basket while we wait, but it means that we have peace in our preparation in Christ. We go through every dark day with the light of Christ burning in our lamps. We bring that light to others by shining the uncommon love of Christ onto people living in a dark world. And finally, we enter that final sleep of death, confident that we are secure in Christ. Whenever that last day comes for you, knowing what to expect is going to change how you prepare. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, you're headed for the same day. But our status on that day is going to be very different from the unbelievers. Remember, it was the prepared, and only the prepared, who went into the wedding feast with the newlyweds. 
The others scrambled and panicked to prepare last minute. They ran off and scattered to see where they could find some oil. And when they got back to the wedding hall, the door was locked. It was shut. The wedding party had started. And the entire point of having a lit lamp, the entire point of having oil in your lamp had passed. Wedding promise had become wedding reality. Faith had become sight. And everybody who was going to be at the party was already there. But for the prepared, that last day becomes the marriage of Christ and his church. And you are that church. It's a church filled with sinners, with lamps that flicker and lamps that shine. Sometimes an unfaithful bride. Sometimes a controlling bride, but all the same, the beloved bride of Christ. A bride who he loved so deeply that he died to pay the bride price. A bride who he considered so precious that he rose from the dead to secure her future. A bride who he cared about so much that he ascended into heaven to prepare a place for her. For Christ, it's not a marriage of lust or desperation or status. But that blessed union where Christ comes to you and takes you out of that life that you once lived, out of pain, out of sickness, out of hardship, out of addiction, out of anxiety, out of depression, and brings you home to share an eternal life with him. Whether that day comes for you at the last day or whether it comes for you at your last day, Jesus wants you to be prepared. It's worth it. Do you know how you recognize the value of something? I think the obvious answer is that it comes down to what you're willing to do for it. Sometimes we come to a fork in the road in life, and at those points a decision must be made. Sometimes we, take, we make a decision because the result of doing nothing, the result of taking no action, is undesirable, disastrous, or even catastrophic. And I think you could argue that this command to be prepared is one of those decisions because not preparing has a disastrous result. But there are other times where you have to make a decision to do something difficult because the benefit that you stand to reap is so awesome and so beautiful that you need it. When you imagine that first look between a holy groom and his sanctified bride on that last day. When you feel the love that lives in that look, the joy of that blessed union in Christ becomes so intense and, and powerful that you need it. That the self-serving desire to escape hell is surpassed by the grace-filled longing to stand in God's presence as his beloved bride. Jesus makes that choice easy for us because when we are prepared for his return, panic becomes peace and our wait becomes hope. Amen. Amen.